The Movie Morgue Podcast is supported by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you want to learn how to support our show, please go to patreon.com slash doubledocmd. And now for this week's episode. Just wash it all, wash it all away, it will haunt you, you wear it well. Bridesmaids and groomsmen, other assorted flower children, we are gathered here today to record and discuss the Movie Morgue, the movie autopsy podcast. I'm your host, Silvio Emery. And I'm Annie Neller. And, as I've said, we're here to talk about Bridesmaids, the 2011 Paul Feig uh, comedy. And, uh, yeah, this is going to be a fun one. So, Annie, you brought this one to me. You you were just like, this was top of your list to talk about this week. And I want to know why. Because I'm actually not that familiar with this film. Okay, so... um. Well, I wanted to introduce a film into one of our episodes that would kind of lighten the mood, because we have done a lot of grim stuff. Uh, But also, there's a lot to talk about with this movie. It came out in 2011, as you mentioned, and it was just kind of like this critical darling. Like, it even got nominated for an Academy Award for writing, and Melissa McCarthy got nominated as a Best Supporting Actress for her role in this movie. So I thought... Well, why don't we have a look at Bridesmaids, since people seem to like it a lot, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, so you had never seen this before? Is that right? Uh, no, I had not. Okay. And I had to double-check that I hadn't, because, um, I heard a lot of buzz. This this is really, really good, like, a couple of years ago. Yeah. And this was one of those movies that, like, people are saying, like, oh my god, you haven't seen it? And so I was pretty sure I hadn't seen it, and I was right. But, you know, you you kind of doubt that sometimes when you, (laughs) like, remember people universally praising something. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. No, uh, and I really didn't know that much about it going in. So, yeah, let's go ahead and rate this before we kind of get into more about it. And um, I'll go first, and I'll give this one a B, I think. Like, it's interesting like it's not a (laughs) generic rom-com i'll give it that no it's not but uh some of the comedies i'm not gonna say the comedy beats but i think maybe the overall comedy sensibilities don't quite nail with me so like i can see there is some merit and some intent that i don't necessarily gel with but i still think it's well done it's just not something i think that would necessarily enjoy that much uh we'll we'll get into this a little bit more later but yeah solid b for me there's nothing particularly wrong with it but there's also i think nothing particularly striking about it in terms of cinematography or craft but the script is you know solid and the timing is purposeful i'll put it that way it's purposeful purposeful, purposeful. i mean that sounds like shade i'll i think i'm comfortable calling it shade really um okay you're giving it a B. You know, I'm going to go with a C plus or B minus on this one. I think that Bridesmaids was kind of, uh, I don't want to say transformative because it really wasn't. Um, but it was doing something new for rom-coms in 2011. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. As you've mentioned, uh, a lot of the jokes in this movie do not land, and I think it depends on what kind of mood you're in. So this is a movie that requires you to be in a certain mood for them to, you know, like make you actually physically laugh. But, um, I mean, there's some funny bits to this movie. There's some 
enjoyable commentary on the suburbs that's going on in here, but yeah, for the most part, I mean, this isn't a movie that I have come back to since watching it in 2011, and I asked my partner about it, too, because I think he was the person that I watched this with, and he was like, yeah, like, I remember this being sort of like, you know, we laughed while we were watching it, and then we just didn't come back to it. It's that kind of movie. And then we never thought of it again. Yeah, until now. <laughs> yeah, okay, so... So there's our ratings, and let's go ahead and dive into this mechanically because there's some stuff about this. And I think this is kind of an interesting point for the podcast because I think this is the first film, for me at least, um, that we've done on the podcast that is aimed at a very different demographic. Like, that is one thing I'm seeing about this. This is, like, that's that's a joke that, you know, uh, rom-coms are designed for women and there's that whole Hollywood baggage and all that. But one thing I'm noticing watching this film is... This is calling on what I presume is a presumed shared experience of womanhood and female socialization. So, like, without that framework, this film is actually kind of alien to me. And, like, it's difficult to watch because what, as a man, what I'm seeing is here is a bunch of women freaking out and getting hysterical over this crazy fucking thing what the fuck is going on and so like i can still understand that context i think especially within this film it does establish i think kind of the stress and the drama of it and that's not a bad thing but it does give me a layer of separation that makes it harder i think for me to necessarily i guess natively appreciate this film okay well, and I think that makes a lot of sense, right? So I think you also brought up that this is a different audience than we were looking at before. Um, in terms of audiences, this is definitely targeted specifically at white women who live in the suburbs. Like, that is who they're aiming for. I would call Bridesmaids a kind of inside joke, in a way. Um, if you are a woman who identifies that particular way and you have had some of the experiences that the characters have in this movie I think some of the jokes are going to work for you which is why some of them worked for me and also for my partner so yeah I mean it's just very niche very targeted yeah which is weird because I feel like the kind of discourse around it was like this was some kind of revolution of rom-coms and this was like something everyone had to see and I don't agree with that necessarily yeah i mean it depends on what you're talking about in terms of the typical rom-com right so like sleepless in seattle and you've got mail sort of set the bar for a while and again like these are movies that are specifically framed within the lens of white suburban discourse but Bridesmaids, I think, is a game changer or was a game changer in 2011 because it travestied the idea of suburban women. And it does that with very particular reference to, like, scatological humor. But to be honest, um, I think what I see looking back now is the sort of start of these kind of shock comedies that... um, Paul Feig has kind of been known for doing like spy um some of the vehicles that Melissa McCarthy has been in 
fit within it too. And this was kind of the beginning of that. This was sort of before all that happened. And I just don't know that those movies have the same level of longevity that, um, you know, other rom-coms have had. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can kind of see it. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he has a cast that he likes to work with. And that, that, that was another thing that I find kind of interesting is there's actually a lot of actors I recognize in this film. But this is also, I think, before a lot of their careers kind of hit mainstream spotlight. So they're from different places in their career than where I'm familiar with them from. Um, like, in particular, Melissa McCarthy, I recognize, but also doubted that I recognize. Like, I feel like this film, her performance in this film has less in common with her, I guess, current persona or oh, image, yeah. you would call it. Yeah. And more in common with, like, her Sean Spicer impression. <laughs> Yes, that is very accurate. And I mean, she did say that she based her characterization of Megan on, I think it was Guy Fieri. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Which is to say, I actually loved her in this. Um, yeah. But like, it was it was a little bit of a weird moment for us. Like, is that? No. Yeah. No. Yes. Wow. Um. So let's talk about kind of the timing for a second, because this is one thing that I think this film did very well, that I think is executed well and probably worked for a lot of people, but I personally am not into, is this is, I think in many ways, the biggest cringe comedy, as much as I hate that term. But um, the way that you operate comedic timing in something like this is you point the camera, and then once you've got the camera pointed... You play it out, and then you keep going past the point of no return, and you keep the camera on, you keep it rolling, and you let the awkwardness build to a crescendo, and then when the audience is going to break, you push it a little bit further, and then you cut later, like after the whole thing. And it's an it's a important kind of comedy, and that's not to say that this isn't something that I like. Um, one of my favorite animators, for example, is Don Hertzfeld, who is an absolute master of this technique. Um, but what they do with this, particularly in this movie, is it's very much about, like like I said, cringe. And I, I feel like it's a very nonspecific term that I kind of hate. And especially because what it's been associated with, especially online, is this idea of, it's schadenfreude. It's schadenfreude. But it's also, I think, used a lot to punch down and is like, you know, like the fucking alt rightosphere dark enlightenment anti-sjw look at these people who aren't necessarily aesthetically beautiful being passionate about things it's i think like if you want the quintessential example look at you know um the numa numa guy or the star wars kid it's like here here's people sincerely and enthusiastically enjoying something that they love and let us laugh at them for that so like it's an association that i don't like and where this film kind of does it is it kind of just takes human misery and then just holds the camera on it for too long. And oh, yeah. it's very uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. It is really, this was a very difficult movie for me to rewatch. Like, and you said you were having trouble too. I think there were some pacing issues at the beginning of the film, but I definitely found this film particularly difficult to watch because of how much of it is, cr like, it's just genuinely cringy at times. So. Yeah. The um the second half was a lot more tolerable, but yeah, this movie is, is two long. hours long, and yep. like I was kind of live tweeting you the whole time, and I'm just like, 
if if this doesn't like if the plane scene is a sign of things to come, maybe I'll make it through it. Yeah. But the first half was really difficult. Oh yeah. Yeah. I still don't know what I think about starting off the movie with a scene of like the character of Annie begins and our introduction to her is her sexual failure and the failure of her partner to please her. Like that's just I don't know. It was a very interesting beat to start this movie on and I think it set the tone for the film and I'm kind of fascinated yeah. by that. And it it does because here's the thing. I think it's a great gag, but it also it takes its fucking time because like the, and a, the, a lot of this cast is SNL alumni, so it makes sense that, but this feels like a really drawn out SNL sketch because like I can I can see like um, you know, I could see like a more, I guess, orthodox movie going, okay, haha, bad sex. And then you cut to like the pillow talk is like, that was, no, that was good. Yeah. And like the unsatisfied face or whatever. And then doing the whole kicking out. But like they do like five to eight different positions that are all just weirdly not working. And like every time you think, okay, we're going to move on. I know where the structure is going. It skips to another one. And you're like, no, 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 no. You don't get off Mr. Bones Wild Ride. <laughs> yeah that's very true that's very true and I mean I guess it is a good instance of showing not telling which I don't know for me the scene just dragged on a, a tiny bit too long but oh it definitely that's, that's part of the structure of it so were there yeah. any things in particular in this movie that you really liked like any bits that worked for you or particular performances what worked for you okay so in terms of performances, I really liked Kristen Wiig as Annie. Okay. Uh, I really like Chris O'Dowd as Rhodes. Oh, and uh, just as a cameo, Terry Crews. I love uh, him in everything he does. Yes, Terry Crews. I do love him so and, much. Um, yeah, that's kind of... Well, no, there's some more, but there's a lot of bit parts. I, like I said, I like Melissa McCarthy. Yeah. And... It's kind of hard to think about this because there is a very large cast of very funny people, and some of them work and some of them don't. Yeah. I think um, one of the things that I liked in this movie was there is a chemistry between Kirsten Wig and um, Maya Rudolph that works in that scene in the cafe uh, at the beginning. Definitely. Where they're just kind of like establishing their friendship. Like you can tell these are two people who get each other and are able to riff with one another. And that that is something that kind of worked for me. That's it. I also, I like basically all of the bridesmaids. I think they have good comedy dynamics, but they are, I think, very minimized as characters. So it's, it's hard to even remember which one is named which one. And I feel like right. I'm like discrediting the actresses for doing so and i find it difficult to talk about that so oh, no, i don't want to say totally like agree. oh you know the dissatisfied one the naive one and they do lesbians like that's a great scene it's really funny but like i feel like i'm being like almost disrespectful and not having them credit properly because there's this such a huge imdb page and it's listed in a weird order it's like you know in order it's fucking Kristen wig terry cruz lillian jewelry store couple jewelry store couple don cholodecki it's like yeah it's it's hard uh, Kal kalua who is like a bit part that's on screen for like 30 seconds at most it's it's difficult yeah. to try and navigate and get this 
together to kind of look at it from that perspective a little bit. Yeah, I can understand that. And like that is something that has become a, a kind of hallmark of some of Paul Feig's movies. Like I have to admit to enjoying Spy when it was in theaters as well. But I do have to say for some of the secondary characters in his casting, they sort of become known for the bits that they do. They don't really have much beyond that. There's not a very deep characterization. And, I mean, it's a movie that is talking about women and some of the things that they go through, and it just makes me wish that the characters, like, that we would remember them as people and not as just, like, you know, the bits. Or... Yeah, no, and looking at how they are cast, looking at how they are credited, like, I'm seeing a couple of problems here, because you got stuff like Jewelry Store Couple, that's a bit part whatever, but then you get um, Annie's Mistaken Husband, Annie's Mistaken Fella. Jill Clayburgh is credited as Annie's mom, Helen's stepdaughter, Helen's stepson, Helen's tennis partner, Annie's tennis partner, um, you know, flight attendant, flight attendant, nervous woman on plane. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of people who are accessories to other people. And yeah. even when they're played really well, like Annie's mother, I think, is played wonderfully, but she's not credited with a name. And that's kind of fucked up. I mean, like it, it's it's one thing if the name doesn't make it to the script. But still, like, I feel like these, you know, you need it's, a name. Yeah, it's just, that's one of the things that's weird about this movie. And, I mean, there's a kind of bare-bones nature to some of the characterization in the film. And I think, again, that's a thing that sort of bugs me about these vehicles. Yeah, although that is one thing I actually find kind of interesting about this film is where it chooses not to show things is actually, I think, in some cases, kind of brave. Because, uh, for example, they skip Vegas. They completely skip Vegas. And that, I think, is actually a fascinating choice because once you get off the plane, you assume that's going to be a disaster. Oh, yeah. Like, I think in any other movie, you'd be like, okay, we're getting to Vegas. This is where shit is going to go down. It's going to get wild. And instead of going on, like, this drunken, debaucherous adventure... With, you know, uh, two two of the bridesmaids kissing and, like, having breakdowns about their respective opposite spectrum of dysfunctional relationship. Instead of that, we just cut back to kind of a human tragedy of, you know, oh, I fucked up and now we're not talking kind of abandonment vibe. And that, I think, is actually great. And also, like, this is... And this is something I actually really like, is the husbands and the boyfriends are basically not in the picture. And I like that because this movie is, I think, at its core about the relationship between women and friendship and the way they relate to each other. And we don't know shit about Dougie. Oh, yeah, no, we know nothing about him. And, you know... It, that's Tim Heidecker, which I'm not really familiar with his work, but it's a name I've heard. So, you know, they got someone for the role. It's just nothing. He doesn't do anything at all. And so, like, I do actually think that is, in a way, kind of daring because one th- that, that's one thing I like about this movie is most of these women are married. Like, you have people in settled relationships and those relationships are not put in jeopardy or attacked for the sake of creating drama in the middle act. Yeah, yeah. So, Annie, uh, were there any particular 
credit like it it's it's also like here's the thing catchphrase um but (laughs) it's i find this hard to talk about this movie because the script and like all the kind of mechanical operations of this film are not necessarily about executing a thematic but executing i think a different focus on a i guess off maligned genre so i feel almost like we're bridging into thematics but not necessarily the thematics of the film but of the filmmaking and the screenwriting like it's mechanical but it also isn't am i making any kind of sense here i think those are perfectly legitimate questions doc like we're trying to kind of suss out for ourselves what this movie is doing different within the rom-com genre. And I do want to point something out specifically before I get into that. Because one of the things that I'm fascinated by is what was going on at the time and then also these gendered genre terminologies. So at the same time that this movie had just come out, we've got the Hangover movies happening, you know. And Hangover, as well as some other movies that are about men going to weddings are typically billed as comedies. They're not billed as rom-coms. I find this kind of weirdly fascinating. Um, And it has to do with uh, when you have men in the lead, that seems to be the thing. So when you have women in the lead, they end up getting billed as a rom-com, which is what Bridesmaids um, kind of gets billed as, not just a comedy. And I think one of the things that this movie does that's really kind of cool is it pushes the boundary between the rom-com and the shock comedy. So, like, we've got a scene in the middle of this film where all of these women are barfing all over each other. One of them goes to take a dump in the middle of the street. Like, that is just such a... It's a gross scene, and it's... I personally, the first time I saw it I laughed super hard because I found it weirdly relatable and I like the idea that women can be gross and but that is just such a travesty of the rom-com genre like rom-com tends to center around a quirky flawed female protagonist she's flawed but she's likable Uh, so she's not flawed in any particular way that is you know like, constantly thwarting her own uh, success, technically. And I think that's where Annie is a little bit different. She is. She is uh, not able to take responsibility for anything. And she's kind of the obstacle in her own way throughout the whole film. She's also gone through a lot. Like, she's seen her business collapse in the housing market collapse in 08, which is, I think, one of the ties between this movie and You've Got Mail is um, rom-coms have traditionally been a space in which um, filmmakers can comment on what women in the workplace go through and, um, you know, the the gendered power dynamics of the labor market, which is the whole thing in itself. We can come to that when we talk about You've Got Mail. But uh, I did, like, she's such a flawed character. She's... I find her oddly fascinating. She's also racist multiple times throughout the movie. Like, this is a very flawed person that we're seeing on screen. 
Um, and I, I have to admit, I don't think that this movie lives up to the sort of, uh, potential that it could have because the ending for me was kind of like, and there it is. Um, it didn't really, it wasn't really closure for me. I didn't see the character arcs come to a conclusion. What I saw was kind of, to be honest, a studio processed ending that felt very rote and didn't really deal with where the characters were as people. But how did you feel about the end? So I actually, I hate the ending for a couple of reasons. Um, One, I feel like I don't think Helen really earns her redemption, first of all. No, no, she does not. <laughs> no. And, like, the, the, there seems to be kind of an implicit, you know, um, we share this hell of our own making, so we might as well be comrades here, even if we've not really actually made an effort to change our behavior or so on. Um, but also, the fact that it still is a fucking bougie-ass wedding that's like, exactly my problem with it as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, like, I'm... I, I don't like that they went there. Because that's also a point that I was kind of expecting almost um, at the end. It was I was expecting the wedding to be toned down and for them to be in simpler dresses. As kind of a concession almost. But I was expecting for it to be more intimate. Like, at the end of the movie, what we get is basically an assimilation to suburban values and the idea of the wedding is spectacle. It's not intimacy at all. Uh, Which is just deeply ironic, because that's partly what the movie is about. Like, for Annie, it's finding real intimacy, whether that be with her friendships with other women or, you know, with this new partner that she's found. So, yeah, it was just kind of like, really, guys? (laughs) Yeah. Really? And it's it's weird because the other thing that I'm seeing about this is it's also, I think, kind of a betrayal of, I think, one of the appeals of the film. Because one of the things that I really liked, and this is weird because, you know, everyone in this movie is like, you know, 40 or more, but this feels like a millennial film. It The economic realities and the kind of class struggle of Kristen Wiig as Annie – I think are very well executed and very well done. And the ennui and the kind of despair of it is, I think, very relatable for a millennial audience. And so at the end to go, yeah, no, um, fucking Lillian's still a class trader with her social mobility. Like that's it. It's I think it's kind of antithetical to one of the things I like most about this film. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. And some of the commentary on class, although I will say again, This movie is very deeply entrenched in suburban whiteness, and that is the audience that it's attempting to speak to. And I think you're right to point to Annie as a sort of almost like millennial figure. But this movie is kind of doing some stuff about class mobility in the wake of the 08 um, housing market bubble and also Annie's inability to live up to and perform the expectations of a suburban woman. Uh, That was, I think, one of the things that actually I enjoyed about this movie when I first saw it. I found that kind of relatable. Um, And, you know, like, we can talk about that a little bit more, but each of the women who are bridesmaids in this movie, like, those are women that come 
very specifically from suburban spaces. Like they are types of people that you would see in the suburbs. Um, and I think that was another thing that I related to as well, seeing that played out on screen. Yeah. And like looking at the other bridesmaids for a second, yeah. um, like going kind of along the aisle, I feel like, and maybe this is a script revision that got added by executives or something at some point, but I feel like it's almost like a buildup to where I expect the film to end as an overall kind of condemnation of this pursuit of, you know, white suburban womanhood as a platonic ideal to aspire to. Yeah, because look at you have a woman who hasn't kissed her husband in five years. You have a woman who is completely unsatisfied with a husband who doesn't engage with her sexually. You have Melissa McCarthy, who is something. She's like (laughs) this crazy sexually aggressive conspiracy theorist. Because, like, you know what? Canon of the film, text of the film, we have nothing to say she doesn't have top-level security clearance. But also, I'm pretty (laughs) sure she doesn't. She's just crazy. Yeah. Also, her post-credit with the air marshal is just kind of scary. Uh, yeah, it's horrifying. <laughs> and, it, you know, you've got Helen who does not have platonic friendships in any real capacity. She's just kind of this human Rolodex. And then you have, you know, Annie and Lillian who are more human, more fleshed out, and more relatable characters. And I really thought up until the ending of the film that we were going to pull it back and that we were going to maybe examine this as something that are we really really willing to sacrifice everything to get here? Because Lillian does basically sacrifice her friendship with Annie to get to this perfect suburban white wedding. And she is not punished for it in any... I mean, beyond the humiliation of having to be in these situations because everyone goes through that. That's not specific to her. Um, so I feel like ultimately she was rewarded for it and they have their perfect wedding and... In a way, like, I feel like Annie's walking away from her at the end of the movie. That's a really interesting idea. Yeah, I can kind of see that. I mean, again, and, and her friendship with Helen all of a sudden at the end of the movie, too, was something that really bugged me a lot. Um... I mean, there's a lot about the character of Helen in general that does. Like, again, this is one of the women that you will see in the suburbs. Specifically, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, so this is coming from my own personal experiences. And, you know, like, there are these women who have been taught to place a high value on perfection. Everything has to look right. I have to look right. Um, I have to do this. I have to appear that. I have to repress my emotions. Um, I have to be polite all the time, and it's very confining, and I just, there's a part of me that wished for Helen's sake that she could have had a little bit more at the end of this movie, that she could have had something different, that somebody could have been like, you don't have to be like this, Um, and in a way that was I don't know, uplifting for her and caused her to change. But again, I don't see very much character change at the end of this movie. Like, I see sort of, like, the signifiers of it, but not actually that. And, yeah, yeah and it's a I little think, buggy. 
also, and I will say one direction I'm very glad that this did not go is for, you know, Annie to kind of ascend into the suburban white womanhood. I'm really glad we didn't pretty woman this. Oh my gosh. I was just thinking about that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But also the other thing I find kind of disturbed, like the ending ties the movie together in a way that I don't like because specifically, how do I say this? Specifically, we kind of settle in on whether or not like things are happening, whether or not these friendships are going to continue. And we have a new status quo. But what seems to happen is Lillian is kind of lost there. Like she's gone off. She's got the perfect wedding. She's going to Paris, whatever. And she suffered at the end of the film. At the end of the film, like, you know, she lost her best friend, the wedding. You know, you had Helen as... And I think a really important line that I think just kind of get glanced, gets glanced over is, my dad doesn't know how to pay for this. That's, uh, I think, a really yeah. important line. Oh, yeah. Because, yep. like, th- this is something that is actually a very serious issue in America. Like, across gender lines is class as affectation and the sacrifice and the self-destruction in order to pursue class. Fake it till you make it is a mantra that works for certain professional, I think, aptitudes for things that make a career, for things that will bring you success and happiness and all that. What I don't think it works for is social class. Fake it till you make it doesn't work unless you're a venture capitalist. And there is a serious problem, especially in America, of debt financing very lavish lifestyles, you know. There's, like, there's a lot of people out there, and, like, I there's some stats to back me up. I don't have them handy because I didn't, you know, we don't pre-plan these things. I wasn't expecting to talk about this right now. <laughs> to talk but about you have a lo- debt. You have a lot of people who live, who live, you know, very expensive. They, they buy cards they can't afford to it's it's fucking fight club you know we buy shit we can't afford to impress people we don't like yeah exactly yeah and And it's it's a shared masquerade because everyone is doing it and so so it seems that the only way to genuinely join that world is to marry rich yeah and you look at annie and she's she I, i don't know how she manages it but she's not making rent and she's still I'm guessing someone bought the dress for her because of the embarrassment of shitting in the street. But That was actually one of my other gripes about this. So yeah. she could somehow afford that dress, I... Exactly. So I think that, like, she had to at some point. And the, the way I'm thinking about this right now is that this this movie is almost like a hazing. It's like a test of... Are you willing to? Are you willing and able to perform uh, affluence in order to be invited into the club? And you get this in a lot of social because, like, a lot of like high level jobs are very networking based on your opportunity to acquire them. So, and I think that's kind of telling as to why everyone's so insistent that she have a date for the wedding. Um, yeah, I think it's fair to say that that's about networking, but. 
I think, and this is coming from my own perspective again, as somebody who grew up in the Chicagoland area in the suburbs, I think this is really mostly about the performance of the norms and scripts of the suburbs. And this film is kind of trying to do a little bit of subversive humor with that, right? Because the joke when um, Annie is asked multiple times, is this your husband? Is this your man? Is this your fella? Is not just that Annie is single. It's that Annie has kind of failed to perform uh, suburban femininity in virtually every way, right? She has a failed business. She's doesn't have the access to capital that the women around her do through their husbands. Um, and therefore, she can't define herself in relationship to a man, which is what that question is inviting her to do. Uh, it's asking, are you accompanied? So there's that. <laughs> um, and I think this film is trying to you know, poke a bit of fun at those norms and to say like, hey, why, why did we do this? <laughs> and that's also part of the reason why men don't show up very often throughout this film. But on the other hand, um, if at the end of the film, what we get is, you know, this kind of like idealized, spectacular wedding, this performance of those uh, suburban values that you and I were talking about, it's not really as subversive as the movie thinks it is. Also, I just realized I do actually have a good example of affectation of affluence. Yeah. Um, a fantastic example is, do you remember Ty Lopez? Oh, yeah. The guy who bought all the YouTube advertising a couple of years ago, you know, yeah. 47 Lamborghinis in the Hollywood Hills, whatever. Like, it's a fucking rented Lamborghini. Rich people can literally rent their homes for people to photograph or film themselves in. And, like, you know, you can rent a fucking Lambo. You can rent a fucking mansion, you know? It's it, It's a genuine industry. So... Like, and in certain circumstances, you can fake it till you make it. Uh, you know, if you're trying to sell a lifestyle, you can market yourself and you can create this persona where you are affluent and you are comfortable and people will go, I want to be like you and they will invest in you, which will allow you to finally be that way. But I think in the context of this film, you're replacing because none of the women except for Megan, Melissa McCarthy's character, talk about their jobs and so it seems to me that what i think kind of these the goal that annie does not pursue is this idea of affecting affluence and class in high society in order to marry a wealthy husband i'm kind of worried about that because the wedding is so big and because they're invited to all these events. I'm guessing Dougie's a bougie piece of shit. So, like, this this is, I think, one of the things that I keep coming back to is, like, yeah, Lillian's gone. Like, she's yeah. she's joined that world. She faked it until she made it. And now Annie's journey has been to discover that she doesn't want to fake it and that she has to accept her life as it is and she can move and process with her own problems and find her own happiness and in a way, those are very diverging paths because they talk about like, you know, I'm not going to live five minutes from you. We're not going to be able to talk all the time. And it's just kind of there is no solution to that there is no actual, I think, attempt to bridge the gap 
because as adult friends, it is actually difficult to maintain friendships outside of it incidental friendships. Because when you hard. see someone every day, it's very easy to be friends with them. That's why we're friends with our coworkers. That's why we're friends with our classmates. And why, you know, after high school, a lot of people like still remember their and talk to and share. But like that's really as a phenomenon more for people who are, you know, in the same state still. So Oh yeah. Yeah, there's you know, a lot of people that I, you know, have wanted to see since I graduated college and I haven't been able to get back to see them because I live in a different state than I went to university in. So, yeah. Yeah. So when I see someone saying, you know, well, we're moving away, I'm going to live out like, you know, a couple hours driving you, it's like, that is the death of a friendship. So it is. as much as the movie sets on, you know, breaking their relationship apart and having them come back together to in their hour of need, it still strikes yeah, me as being kind of a funeral. It is. I mean, that friendship is, yeah, it's going to be tenuous at best afterwards if they're living far away from one another. I, Yeah. It, that's one of the things about the script, too. Like, the script doesn't seem to realize what it's doing, <laughs> which is a little frustrating, but, yeah. I mean, I was also kind of expecting that maybe she wouldn't get married at the end. That was another ending I thought might have been coming. Yeah, if this was another movie, I would say that would have been possible, but I don't know. Like, that's the thing. Except for, and I think Melissa McCarthy's role was probably expanded a lot by improv. That's just a vibe I get from this. But uh, yeah. aside from Megan, basically everyone else in the suburban fucking sphere, all the women at least, are completely miserable. Yep. Like, and that's how that works. <laughs> yeah. A great line is like, I need this trip to be something I can fantasize about while I fuck my husband for the next five years. Yep. That's... Yep. That's fucked up. And no, none of them it's resolve very... their issues. But they can't get that resolution, right? And they can't because the way that the story is structured in this film perfectly parallels how Americans think about weddings, Right. So the period leading up to the wedding is a period of carnivalesque. It is a finite space in time in which the rules of society are relaxed such that it can allow for transgression. And not just transgression, but also uh, hedonism and an inward focus. A focus on your own personal agency and desire and the wedding itself marks the end of that carnivalesque period. It is the end, it is the return to the mores and codes of society. In this case, in the end of the movie, it's the return to the suburbs. So it's that kind of character development that we're looking for is not possible within a screenplay structured like that. It's just not. And you know, as I'm thinking about this, I think a good example is um, Lillian's conversation with Annie that she has at her apartment. Um, Lil leaves one of the parties with her husband and heads back to her old apartment. And she's sitting there talking with Annie about how much she's going to miss this space. And it's a moment in which Lillian is able to talk about, you know, her own personal desires to express her own thoughts about this. Um, you know, and to just kind of contemplate, like, these were the things that were mine. 
and now things are going to be different after this. And there is a part of me, I have to say, that wonders, um, you know, what is this scene telling us? Like, is this telling us, is there something rough going on in her relationship with this guy that she's getting married to? Like, is their relationship not working out? Or is this, you know, more about a longing for friendship and kind of reaching out to her friend? I don't really know how to read it. I I don't. I mean, in terms of kind of sentimentality, it's a very complicated topic. It's not what what we say is never what we mean and what we mean might not necessarily be what we actually feel. You know, the the degree of self-deception that we're capable of is incredible, let alone our ability to deceive others. And I I do like that scene because there's a humanity to Lydian that is kind of av- avoided, I think, for most of this film. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, Which is weird because she's so likable. She's very likable. But, um, how do I say this? Yeah, that's, that's becoming catchphrase number two, isn't it? How do I say this? I'll, I'll be on all the t-shirts. How but, do I say this? <laughs> I think what's kind of fascinating to me is the fact that she's mad at Annie after the flight for, you know, embarrassing herself on the flight to Vegas because, like, it looks like she has a moment of doubt. She looks at Helen. She says, what did you give her? And Helen just fucking drugged her as fucked up. And, like, she seems to have an understanding of what Annie's going through. And, like, especially... I, I do kind of like the speech because, you know, I recently watched The Good Place and I'm reminded very yeah. much about um, <laughs> yeah. Chidi's indecisiveness speech. <gasps> yes. Uh, you know, oh, this God. like, this is too much for you to handle. This isn't your world. We're going to let handle, handle it. And you can just be my, you can just be, you know, my friend and be there for me and enjoy this with me. And she seems to understand and be empathetic and be in tune with Annie. But then she just kind of abandons it. And I think one of the reasons that she does that, and this is probably, this is extra textual. This is in trying to infer beyond the bounds of what's presented on the page, but is because I think it's a class affectation because to concern herself with someone who embarrassed her in public, to put the pleasure of this big expensive trip over, uh, sorry, under, to put, you know, someone else's human concern over the other, it's to kind of out yourself as not being of this world. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, and, I think that's a pretty safe And idea. Megan also doesn't belong in that world. She's it's she's presumably self-made. She exits the uh, rehearsal or the bride shower or whatever with, you know, all the puppies she can muster. So it's presumed that she's kind of kicked out of that, but not really. Because she also leaves at a similar time as Annie. Like, she catches up to her on the road. Also, can I just say how utterly bougie that is? That you know, they give away puppies at the fucking shower? Oh, yeah. No, I think that was supposed to be, like, incredibly over the top and everything. Yeah. But, the other thing, yeah. though, is to examine that for a second is not only is it kind of decadent and, you know, like, callous to say, like, hey, here's, you know, a life form, whatever. But there's also a presumption of idleness. Oh, yeah, totally. 
And it's not just about um, that access to leisure time, right? It's the fact that the leisure time necessary to take care of a dog marks you as being a part of the bourgeoisie. So part of being that upper middle class living. So the gifts for this wedding in themselves presume that everyone attending the wedding is of the same class status, which is kind of like, alrighty then. But then again, I mean, a lot of the events they've had at the wedding also presume a certain amount of status, right? So we've got scenes at a tennis court at a private health club. That's a thing. We have a uh, kind of like a, a private club where they have wedding events. And, you know, I know this is supposed to be hyperbolic, but to be honest, there are kernels of realism in their portrayal of the suburbs in this movie that I find just fascinating. Um, one of the things that I'm trying to parse out for myself, Doc, right now is, um, you know how we had like all these movies coming out about like white male proletariat heroes like Mark Wahlberg in Transformers is supposed to be one of those. Um, do you think this is a movie about a white female proletariat heroine? And is that what it's trying to do? I don't know. What do you think? Okay, so... Here, here's here's what I'm thinking about this, because what's interesting, I think there there's some gender dynamics to I think why we have this perception and why I think this film is kind of great and also kind of not great. Um, when a white man on television or film affects being a blue color, like, especially like the quintessential example, I think is Mike Rowe. The man went to college uh, for broadcasting. Yeah. He's never been a blue collar laborer for a day in his life. Now, his advocacy for trade schools is, I think, not completely ill-guided, but he also uses it to slip in, I think, some toxic ideology. I'm not going to get into that. But when a man presents himself as being a blue-collar proletariat man of the people, that is part of, you know, bougie propaganda, is a just-world fallacy, is you work hard, you get successful, you open your own shop, and you, you know, have a nice, pleasant retirement. That's what you get. Um, but... When Kristen Wiig affects this, it is fundamentally different because she is a woman. And what she is doing is struggling because I think when if you looked at the same script, let's just gender flip the script for a second. At this point, then what becomes, you know, her struggling to hold a job, her struggling to pay the rent, her moving back in with her parents as a man, that becomes a personal failing, you know, because we, we live in the society, we're very anglo americentric and there's you that Puritan work ethic. And so that would be looked at as a personal failure. Whereas for Kristen Wiig, I feel like it's relatable and it's kind of more of a condemnation of the societal structure that we live in that, you know, you're falling through the cracks and you can't keep up because her life is difficult. Like, I find her very relatable. And so, I like, th even though she does do, I think, some terrible things, and, like, the, the it's not a... There is no holy good or bad person, and there's a lot of cringe to be had anywhere. Ultimately, I find her sympathetic, and I root for her. And so, because the women... To affect... I think... I mean, f please feel free to respond to this, because, again, I'm not... A suburban white lady so i can't really say to the kind of class but and this is just what i picked up through kind of cultural osmosis 
and you know class discussion and blah 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 proletariat bourgeois blah 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 petit bourgeois <laughs> because that, that's the aspiration i think of the blue collar men is to become petit bourgeois uh to explain the term is the small business owner uh or the hero of the story right the knight yeah. who is part of a monarchy which is the knight but not the king in transformers yes always a bridesmaid <laughs> never a bride ha 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 oh. ha but, like, as a woman, it's not to find, generally speaking, it's not to find happiness with your current role, but it's to, you know, find the rich man and ascend to the pretty life. You know, my fair lady, you know, pretty, uh, fucking, the New York movie. I'm having a brain fart. The New York movie. You mentioned it. Oh. There's, you know, there's so many of those. Yeah. Oh, no, you're thinking of You've Got Mail, and you're absolutely correct. Um, Yeah. Yep, that's right, too. So. <sighs> yeah. No, that's definitely true. I, I don't know. Like, her character is incredibly flawed. And I will say, she does some very privileged things, like the whole airplane sequence, which I will admit, I find rather funny. It's um, a good sequence. We can give it that. It's a good sequence. And, you know, but also, like, I've been thinking a lot about you know, news stories about people on planes and who gets to misbehave and who doesn't. And part of the reason why that works as a comedic space, like the plane is not a comedic space for the bodies of people of color. It's just not. And part of the reason why the comedy works there is because they are white suburban women. Yeah. Who are behaving badly. I will... And and that's where the comedy stems from. I do want to alleviate that slightly, though, because while I I agree with the assessment and there is a discussion to be had around that, the the key thing I do want to talk about for for Kristen Wiig's character specifically is, first of all, she is not having a good time in Coach. She is scared. She is in a very paranoid place. She's feeling unwell. And then she is maliciously drugged. She's in an altered state. I'm not, I don't want to take away from the privilege of, you know, causing trouble on a plane and not getting arrested. Well, she did get arrested, but like, no, is, is a, and a I'm not peaceful. saying that that subsumes everything else. I'm just saying like, that was kind of in the background of my mind it, it, as I was it, watching yeah, this no, scene. It, I, and I, I can see that, but also like, that's really fucked up. She gets drugged. She gets fucking drugged. And that, that's, I think part of why I hate Helen so much is she is basically unrepentant. She does not, you know, she doesn't do anything to absolve herself except to fail once. Yeah. Let's actually cut back a little bit because I want to talk sure. about Chris O'Dowd because his performance oh, is really yes. because this film He's just was amazing. Yeah. No, this film was almost physically uncomfortable, uncomfortable to watch. Um, You know, there's very few films I've ever walked out on. And considering that I watched this roughly 12 hours ago before the podcast recording, I was going to go. Can I really not finish? I like I, there was a pressure for me to finish the movie that I think if I was watching this for entertainment, I would have stopped. Yeah, uh, no, I had to skip around in the movie. Like I was watching this on my laptop, and I had to skip around because I did also find it incredibly cringy, and I just needed something. Yeah, and Chris O'Dowd gives you that something. Yeah, no, he is palpable relief in this film, and he, he's a little like that's one of I think Annie's big sins is to kind of malign and reject him as like 
and I don't want to say that, you know, that you are obligated to accept a man or that, you know, that's a crime because that's where you get to fucking Elliot Rogers territory and no, but <laughs> you know, the, it, it, in the language of film, they end up together. So everything that's tension between them is kind of artificial in a way. And so it be, kind right, of, it becomes she, a sin in she the language She tells of us film. in the, she tells us in the text of the film though, too, that, um, she has run away from him like she does with anyone who she finds a serious commitment to. So she does have an actual connection to him and she knows that and she is actively running away from that. Yeah. Which, uh, that's a very, very real thing. And yeah. Yeah. And I actually will say weirdly, <laughs> I am kind of disappointed that they get together at the end of the film. Like, I like that it happens. I enjoyed that it does, like, because I'm rooting for it. But at the same time, it does, I think, minimize a little bit the power of the dynamic they had towards the end of the film where they had to reconcile the fact that they hurt each other. Uh, yeah, that, and also, I'm, again, because of the lack of character development in this film, um, by the end of it, I'm not really sure that Annie has fully changed. I'm not sure if her getting a car light fixed is enough to signal change. <laughs> if you will. And <laughs> please, please enjoy that. Signal change. Um, <laughs> and so I'm kind of like, I don't this guy seems like very nice and I'm not sure if she'd be nice for him. I don't I don't really know. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think if you wanted to take this film and maybe signal more kind of the Phoenix Rising of Annie from Rock Bottom, um you'd probably have her reopen her bakery. Yeah. That's probably where yeah. it's go. And right. I'm really wondering about the production history of this film because I feel like there's a lot of stuff that is set up and not paid off. And I feel like maybe there were a lot of versions of this script and there's like a lot of artifacts left. There were? There were a lot of versions of the script and the studio interfered quite a bit, as did Judd Apatow. Um, this was a Judd Apatow project. So a lot of the scatological humor that you see in the movie, like taking a dump in the sewer um, during the dress fitting, that was pretty much all Judd Apatow. There was a lot of conflict during the production about the direction that they wanted this movie to go. Um, the writer, Annie Mumolo, and um, her co-writer, who was Kirsten Wig or Kristen Wig, excuse me, um, they both wanted this to be a, kind of like a character-driven comedy about a woman who just really couldn't get her shit together. And Apatow really wanted this to be a movie about um, bridesmaids behaving badly with a lot of, like, shock humor and stuff like that that he thought would sell. And that came into conflict quite a few times. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think that affected the outcome for the film. I mean, it general. is kind of – this movie is kind of in two minds because, like I said, the characters of a lot of the bridesmaids are kind of sketched and not really fully realized, but there's also enough seeds planted that I believe at some point during the production, they were meant to have some kind of character growth or change. Like, um, Helen, for example, her kids hate her. They absolutely hate her. And, like, 
I was expecting something to be done with that. I mean, they get like a small scene where like the, the only payoff to them is them going looking at Annie freaking out and breaking stuff is going, this is so fucking awesome, which is it's a good little bit. But I was really expecting her to move on from her, her to move on from like to get a divorce or something like there's a, so many seeds planted of, you know, like this is you're unhappy. This is why. And there's a chance maybe to change something about it, but it just doesn't happen. Mm-mm. And the- no, and that's that's also a very suburban story. Once again, like as I said, her character is somebody that I am quite familiar with, and they don't get divorces. You do not get a divorce if you are that character. Yeah, that's part of who she is. Well, that's what prenups are for. But um, yeah, the other thing is looking at the bakery. It's a set. They have the sign. And, like, it wouldn't take too much to build it, but to have it in two different iterations, to have it in a photograph and to have it today with, you know, um, cock bitch or whatever the fuck it says. I forget the name of the actual... It was was cake something, and the A and the 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 E had fallen off cake, so someone had written cock and drawn a cock on her. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Oh, cake baby. Cake baby. There we go. Cock baby. That's what it was. I was just like I, I, I couldn't th- I couldn't remember baby so I was just like cock Sorry. it started with a B bitch cock bitch whatever. Um, to have it set, I that's bl- a different movie, Doc. Different movie. <laughs> we don't review not those written on the by movie Judd Apatow. No, we don't. No, but um, how do I say this? Um, that we had that set and you had the boarded up windows and the foreclosed or whatever signs really makes me believe that at some point like she was going to reopen the baker and especially with the emphasis that she had on baking and i actually love the baking sequences they're really beautifully done and like there's something really sentimental and like almost but not quite saccharine about them like it's just relaxing and mellow in a way that the rest of this film is not i also like the idea of um annie being somebody who makes things on screen i think that's a really <laughs> Like, it's baking. It's it's the domestic art form. And when we see it on screen as portrayed in Bridesmaids, it's not just something that, you know, women do in the kitchen. It's, a, it's an artful performance of making something. And that's beautiful. And I also liked that Chris O'Dowd's character sort of appeals to Annie at one point. He was like, I thought we could bake together. Um... And to make it sort of like a communal activity, but that does not work out in part because it's also an appeal to her for her to bake for him, which was sort of fascinating too. Yeah, but yeah, but I like that. The we we kind of got sidetracked. I wanted to talk about Odoud, and we kind of went oh, on yeah. a wide tangent. But we he, did. He is, we went on a tangent. Yeah, he he is a palpable source of relief in this film. And like I said, I'm kind of disappointed that they got together, or at least that they didn't put more, I guess, work into getting together. Um, but, like, he's really charming, and I think he's the only, the only really notable male character. Isn't he? Yeah, he is. He is. Um. First of all, his performance is very charming, um, but I also like what he represents, because he is, in the text of this film, he is a good partner, someone who is good for Annie. Whether or not Annie's good for him is a separate debate entirely. But 
what I really like is that in contrast to all these other invisible men who provide financially and apparently don't satisfy the emotional or physical needs of their wives, he is presented as a someone, you know, he's a cop. He does fun activities with him is like using a speed gun and going on ride-alongs, baking together. He lives in like this shitty little house that is more than you and your I are ever going to be able to afford. But like as an ideal to seek, as a person to pursue, he is humble in a way that I think, at least in my experience of rom-coms, is very rarely portrayed. You know, um, people who come to people who women seek and or seek women in rom-coms are generally like you know songwriters or architects or radio hosts. You know, it's people with these big moneyed positions who live you know generally in bigger cities in you know positions of wealth and comfort and privilege. And Dowd is O'Dowd is weird and quirky and humble and communal and friendly and warm. And I really like that. Like the luck the ugly carrot thing. It's yeah, but also like that's like a cute, charming, kind of like lower middle class suburban kind of superstition silliness. Like it's it's something that and it's also kind of unguarded because that's the kind of thing the way the mode in which he interacts with her i really like because he kind of treats her like one of the guys in a way i mean you know they still fuck they still have a romantic flirtatious dynamic to them but it's also like hey you know like that's the kind of thing that i think in a more upper class or a more class conscious um aspirational relationship you would guard against revealing to a potential romantic partner because it's gross like you know the ugly guy is like that, that's the kind of thing where it's like, you know, you don't want to... Sh- you you put up a different front to someone you're trying to woo than to someone you're just hanging out with. And I think they genuinely do just hang out, and that's lovely. And it kind of falls apart when he tries to take things a little bit more seriously, and he tries to help her bake again. Yeah, he is. He's just kind of like quirky and funny and sweet. Um, and very well fleshed out as a character, in part because he gets, you know, quite a bit of screen time because of his relationship with Annie. One of the other things that this was making me think about as I was watching his scenes play out um, is what this role of the police officer might stand in for in this movie, because it's a very specific choice to choose a police officer. Like, they could have chosen a garage mechanic and gotten away with it quite easily, Um, you know, the garage mechanic stands in for something else though, right? Like that's a very blue collar job with very little access to any form of structural power. And in the police officer, Annie is dating. She can find some access to protection, right? Like that's literally the motto of the American police force is protect and serve, So it's still, in a way, an appeal to a patriarchal power structure that uh, she's kind of entered into. Um, Yeah, it's not really avoidable, and and that's why I think the police are in this movie. Um, And if you want to talk about, you know, rom-coms and the police and the normalization of a police state, I think that's a perfectly legitimate conversation, but perhaps one for another episode. I, I do think that's a bit outside the scope of this, but I will say Definitely. Um, one 
<laughs> one line I both enjoy and am slightly horrified at is yeah. he's saying like you know baking something you do is like you know even if you didn't have break like you still bake like you know even if I wasn't a cop I'd still go out and shoot people. Uh, there was that. <laughs> there was that. Yeah. And yeah. and him implying that he had checked up on her and stuff in his car, but yeah. Yeah, that too. That's a little bit creepy. But you know, um, in in I think in filmic terms, generally speaking, creepy is dependent on whether or not the film has decided you're a creep. Oh right, it's a, this is about the text of the film and what it's actually saying, and obviously any reading that we would want to do about that would be extra textual. Because yeah, um, I, I think yeah. a, like a month or two ago, there were some stories on Twitter going on about people just casually abusing their their power to um, explore confidential information on people they were potentially dating on like Tinder or something. It's like, oh yeah, I looked up your medical records. And just like the casualness yep. with which people did that, it's kind of scary and freaky and super fucking creepy. But yeah. Again, that's kind of outs- – and also this was 2011. This was, you know, eight year- seven, eight years ago, and, like, our concerns about information security have become, I think, a lot more pronounced in the last couple of years. Yeah, I just think that it is interesting to see this moment in which we are very confident and trusting and willing to see basically a character of a cop as this – uh, not just as a, a love interest, but as somebody who is, like, essentially good at their core. Because that's what the character that Chris O'Dowd plays um, is supposed to be readable as. It's just kind of a fascinating moment before, um, you know, a lot of people started realizing stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, here's the thing, though. Like, being a cop is not really that important to his character. No, um, it's not. I th- it- like, it would take a little bit of finagling, but I think you could essentially replace him with a tow truck operator. You know, yeah. instead of her swerving, which I think is kind of a... Like, that that's pushing it a bit in terms of, like, oh, you're, you're getting so into your impersonation of someone that you're swerving on the road. That's a little silly. I'll accept it for the purposes of moving the story forwards, but, like, it could just as easily be, oh, her car breaks down, she has to call a truck, and then, like, you know, they're driving in the cab together and having a discussion or something, you know? Or he's yeah. like, are you drunk? Like, you could have all the... You could have virtually the entire thing. Because he really doesn't have a lot of signifiers, except that he sits there and does the radar gun. And also he looks uh, up. yeah. Um, where if... that he Also, that, actually, I'm going to say... It's, it's also kind of going against one of the things that he harps on about, is that rules are there for a reason. You know, yep. your fucking taillights, they're important, yep. and you can hurt people by not following them. And then... He immediately disregards the 24-hour missing persons thing to Uh domestically spy on someone. Yeah. Which, by the way, by the fucking way, is a classic tactic of abusers. Is to fucking, like, Mm -hmm. abuse the apparatus to keep tabs on people yeah. who are under their thumb it's that's yeah it's not what I was sinis- saying. <laughs> yeah, it's not sinister in the context of this film but it is something that is very often sinister and that that's how you hack into systems for example it's you don't like hack the mainframe and rewire the firewall you don't do that you get an idiot to do something that their rules say you shouldn't do because they're they don't know better you know it's called social engineering you go 
you know, you drop a thumb drive in a parking lot and someone will plug it into a work computer and go, oh, I guess it didn't do anything. And then, you know, there's a virus on the system now that you can get backdoor access or whatever. You don't. And then the transformers know where you are. Oh no no, that's <laughs> not good. But you know that that's how these things work. Is you get someone to disregard something for selfish or lazy reasons, or you know even good reasons. Yeah. That's why yeah. it's social engineering. You engineer the situation where they feel okay. That's maybe not why it's called social engineering. I, I'm not. I am not the founder of the social engineering club, so I'm not going to actually <laughs> comment to the etymology of that. But, you know, it, it's it's how things are. Um, Yeah, I mean, again, like this is why I wanted to have you watch this movie, because I wanted to for us to talk about this. But this is one of those movies where there's a core concept to it, and yeah, it's funny... And then you start applying pressure to some of the basic storyline and you kind of start to realize that this is one of those movies that is producing the logic of the suburbs as this kind of self-evident thing. This thing that's always been there and that's kind of a norm that's in place and, you know, these women are, are transgressing against it. Um, so it's it's this weird movie that simultaneously um constrains female agency but also allows for female agency in these really weird ways yeah but yeah ultimately that is what i take away from this is that despite my problems with it and despite i think how it functions as a comedy not necessarily lining up with my sensibilities um, one thing I appreciate is that, and maybe this isn't the artistic intention, and maybe this, or maybe it is the artistic intention, but not the studio intention, is that this film is a tragedy, and tragedies are not popular filmmaking. No, they are not. Um, like, in particular, like I said, it's weirdly, it feels like a millennial film, even though everyone in it is Gen X, is the realities of Annie's life and the economic realities and the societal pressures that she's forced to deal with and her inability to perform and kind of function in this world is uh, there's some truth to that and there's something relatable and difficult about that and that's something that i think is important about this film even if as a paul feed comedy i'm not super into the rest of it i'm gonna co-sign on that <laughs> all right this has been the Movie Morgue, your movie autopsy podcast. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at uh, Movie Morgue Cast. And uh, yeah, I've been Silvio Emery, your host. You guys can follow me on Twitter at DoubleDocMD. I also stream video games on Twitch at DoubleDocMD. And uh, any. And can yeah, find I mean, your, your Twitch is actually really kind of fun. And I keep popping on there randomly um thank you i'm annie neller and you all can find me at at lights and music on both twitter and instagram always yeah and this podcast is made possible by our supporters on patreon if you want to learn how to support us check out patreon.com slash double doc md otherwise feel free to share like listen comment subscribe especially reviews those help a lot actually you would be surprised anyways thank you guys so much for making all this possible we love each and every one of you and uh we'll see you next time bye bye